Y'all don't want that today. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, thank you for, we thank you always for your word, and we'll see in, in a matter of minutes how significant your word is and what our responsibility is to that word. There are many people in this room, Lord, and watching online who have varying levels of maturity, varying levels of conviction. There are some here this morning that really have a desire to honor you. And I pray that you would meet them where they are. There are some this morning, Lord, who are apathetic to honoring you. They may be here for the social dynamic or out of some obligation, but their hearts are hard. They may even be so deceived that they don't even see it. Lord, I pray that you would meet them where they are. Lord, I lack the skill and the ability to bring about change in anyone. The best that I can do is use the particular gifts that you've given me. But ultimately, what people respond to is not my jokes or my interpretation or my personality. They respond to your spirit. So I pray, Lord, that you would do a work in them that I can't do and that they would hear a sermon better than I'm about to preach because you're quickening their hearts to understand the reality as we have from last September to this day, the reality of what we call spiritual warfare. Today, we bring it to conclusion for your glory and our good. In your name we pray, amen. We have finally arrived at Ephesians 6, the undisputed heavyweight champion of spiritual warfare. This is the passage that most churches build their sermon series around. We're going to jump right in, and in so doing, we're going to bring some things back full circle that we've heard throughout this series, primarily because the writer of Ephesians is Paul, and Paul is, is aware of what the Jews believe from the Old Testament scriptures and the other writings that they had access to that formed their supernatural worldview. So Paul is writing this in full knowledge of all supernatural things. And so some of this will come back full circle from what we've heard in this series. We began this series entitled The Supernatural Storyline of the Bible with this idea. We wanted to understand the supernatural worldview of the ancient Israelites. How is it that they are comfortable with and have come to believe and accept things that for us we question? How is it that we impose the worldview that we have today on the worldview of these folks as if what we understand today is closer to what God thinks and what they understood? So the goal in this series was to help us 
understand their worldview, how were they processing cosmic powers of darkness? How did they process God, demons, angels, Satan, the responsibility of them in the midst of it? How did they process living in the seen realm, knowing there's an unseen realm? How did they come to believe things that are complicated for us? Their worldview is vastly different from ours. Well, in conclusion of this series, we're going to again focus on the original audience and how they would have understood these words from Paul. And my hope is that we take everything that we've heard over the last year and it helps us establish a conviction to honor the Lord. The conviction doesn't come from who's preaching. The conviction comes from what you actually believe to be true and are committed to in the word. I've said it many times and I'll say it again. This church does not need me or anyone. While I'm grateful to play a role as a pastor here, this church doesn't need me to honor the Lord. What we need is to believe what the scriptures actually say to us because these are the words, not mine, that are going to guide us. When you forget what I've said, you always have what God said front and center. So let's begin in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12, and I quote, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This passage begins with Paul informing us that we are at war. This is he's concluding his letter to the Ephesians, and he says, finally, in wrapping up everything that he said in chapters 1 all the way up to this point, he's concluding it, and he's telling them, hey, everything I've said to you, all this stuff about your salvation, the mystery of God bringing non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, into salvation. Your responsibility as a church in Ephesians 4. The responsibility of you submitting to one another, husbands and wives, how you're to conduct yourselves. Fathers, how you are not to exasperate your children. Now that I've said all those things, let me remind you that you are in a war. And he gives two commands before describing what kind of war we are in. Here's the first command. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He's making an assumption that the church in Ephesus, the Ephesians, and presumably all of us know what that means and know that that's a responsibility that we ought to have to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. This is a command to not trust your own devices to thwart the devil. It doesn't say be strong in and of yourselves. 
Be strong in your personalities. Be strong in your knowledge. It says be strong in the Lord. Because that's the only way you're going to be able to successfully thwart the devil. It may be safe to say that many of us in this room or watching online, that we're frustrated because a lot of what we do to resist the devil are our own efforts. We're frustrated at the results of growth. I know I've been in my own life. I've been. Dissatisfied, discouraged. Man, I should be further along. But I wonder if we actually believe that the weapons are actually weapons. Because I see more people drawn to getting counsel. You want someone to talk you into a maturity. You'll meet with people every day. Sometimes, as long as you don't have to really pray. We want people to talk us into maturity. We set up accountability structures. And we think, oh, man, I got these guys I can check into these ladies and I can call them and check in. And those are wonderful things. But every one of us have gone against those accountability structures. Every one of us have gotten counsel, agreed with the counsel, left encouraged after the counsel, and then completely disregarded the counsel as soon as we were tempted to do the very thing that we went to get counsel for. Because these things are good, but they're not in this list. They're not listed here as weapons. They're helpful, but there's no weapons here for accountability, for getting counsel, for distraction. Many of our efforts are frustrated because we, we kind of see what we do as sort of a spiritual placebo. Like, oh, if I do these things, like this is working. If I confess my sin, it's the same thing as going after it. You know how often I've sat with people in tears, confessing, and then engaged in it that same night? Confession is not obedience. Confession is acknowledgement of disobedience. So he says, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might, not our own. And some of us need to just be honest and say, man, we're, we're more comfortable with the things that we want to do. And then if we don't make progress and we're frustrated, then it's somehow God's fault. The second command he gives us is this, put on the whole armor of God. And he says that you can withstand the schemes of the devil. He's saying, put on the armor of God. This is all you need. This is all you need to withstand the devil. Just put on the armor of God. This is the command. Put on the armor of God. He tells us we're in a war, and you got to be strong in the Lord, and you got to put on the whole armor of God. That's all you need. Now, the opposite is often or always true. 
if you do not put on the armor of God, then you can't withstand the devil. So if you are not putting on the armor of God, then it makes total sense why your progress is not where you want it to be. I know I failed in this miserably in my, in my life. You can't stand against the schemes of the devil unless you use the weapons that God said are weapons. If they're not weapons to you, then you're going to create weapons for yourself and you'll fail. And the worst that could happen is you quench the spirit and withdraw the profession of faith that you have. We need the armor of God because the war that we're in is fought by supernatural beings created by God. He gives us two commands and then he tells us what kind of war this is. He says at the end of verse 11, he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So here's the war. It's against the devil and his schemes, his devices, his trickery, his manipulation. This is the kind of war it is. And he says in verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. He's making it clear this is not a war against someone else. It's not even a war against someone that you can see. What a wonderful scheme of the devil because so many people think they're at war with this political opposition or these people or these people or this group of people or that group of people. And he's saying we're not wrestling with flesh and blood. This is not that kind of war. He tells us, look, you're at war, and here's the weaponry. Here's what you need. And then all of a sudden in the passage, he moves us from understanding that we're in a war to understanding the warriors we're fighting against in the war. So he says we're not flesh and blood, and he goes on the list, a bunch of references that for us are like, well, these aren't, this isn't how we talk today. Probably the problem with the Bible is we just don't talk the way it talks. And so you get translations that try to put things in modern terms that we can relate to, but sometimes those translations cut out what he's really trying to say. He tells us there are warriors that we're fighting against. You're in war. Here are the warriors. And there are two primary ways he describes what the warriors are. Your cosmic powers of evil. And he gives us two things to help us understand who are we at war with? He gives us the infrastructure and the influence of the warriors we're fighting against. Let's look at verse 12. Here's the infrastructure. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We're already triggered because every time we hear the word heaven, we think, oh, that's the good place where God is. And what are we talking about here? 
What do you mean spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places? I was looking forward to going to heaven with just to be around the Lord. Who wants to go to heaven and be fighting off 20-foot demons? Heaven's a buzzword for us. It throws us off. But we understand heaven differently than the way they would have. They understood the heaven and the concept that we have. But when he's talking here, he's talking about heavenly places is just a description of the immaterial world. The unseen realm, to quote one theologian. He lists all these categories explaining the enemy. And why does he do that? Why is he listing these categories? Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil. Why is he listing them off this way, giving us these categories? Because Paul realizes who he's talking to. In the same way that I will use illustrations in a sermon that you all can relate to because we live in a modern time or you know me and know part of my story, he's doing the same thing, writing to a group of people who are both Jew and Gentile, knowing that they understand sort of rank, hierarchy. So he uses a Greco-Roman just like we're American, when the Bible was written, it was written, at least the New Testament, it was written in a culture where it was Greco-Roman, where the Greeks were in charge for a long time and the Romans overthrew them, and they sort of merge this reality. So he's writing to a Greco-Roman culture and using a hierarchical structure to help that church understand that you're, the war that you're in and the warriors you're fighting against are intelligent, they're organized, administrative, and they're militaristic. There's a rank among them. He's taking what they would have done and said, oh, okay, I, and saying, oh, because we don't, we don't see the enemy. We just think everything is a demon. <laughs> and we think before this series that demons are just fallen angels. Uh, that's a little more complicated than that. A little complicated. So he's like, let me make sure you understand who you're fighting against. They are organized. They are militaristic. And they are a formidable opponent. Take them seriously. He uses something the church has, in Ephesus has seen to describe what they haven't seen. And so you've got a mix of people who are Jew and Gentile and he uses terminology that both of them would have easily understood based on two things, the governmental structure they see and then their understanding of gods, which they call the pantheon. The multitude of gods is a structure to those. So here's how they would have saw this politically. Similar to our day, the emperor. The emperor in their day would have been Caesar. For us, it would be the president, right? The emperor, the top of the hierarchy, in the Roman Empire, held ultimate power and authority. They had senators, very much like we get that from them, with power who make governmental decisions underneath the emperor but are given authority over certain jurisdictions. They serve in the Senate, which is the governing body of Rome. 
They had equestrians, also known as the night class. These were a social class of people ranking just below the senators. These would be like military officials to us. People in, in the government, the, the people who work for the Department of Defense, who have authority to make militaristic decisions. They have proconsuls and prefects, which are essentially people who ruled over various provinces in the Roman Empire. They were usually appointed by emperors of the Senate. These would be like our governors today. Our governors have a lot of authority, but not as much authority as those above them. Local magistrates, these would be our local politicians, the kinds of people that Mike, Pastor Mike, interacts with. And the other officials, there are other people that have authority over us that are not any of those. He's explaining sort of a hierarchy so that they get, oh, wow, there are supernatural beings that we're at war with that have different rank, and they're organized. They're powerful, and they're after us. If you are a Christian, not by just profession, but actually trying to live out, then you are an enemy to the enemy. And you are a target. Do not think for a moment that because you're a Christian that you are protected in and of itself. You are on one level, but you are the target. They're not like, oh, we ain't going to mess with them. And they, no, that's, he wants people who believe. This is why he appears as an angel of light. Because the only way he can get people who profess to believe is by appearing to do things in a righteous way. So he has to appear like this is a righteousness you can also do. But it's a righteousness that contradicts the righteousness that you're used to in Christ. However, you can still be a good person. In Ephesians 6.12, when Paul uses terms like rulers and authorities, he is borrowing language from the social and political structure of the Greco-Roman world and applying it to spiritual realities. This is a common feature for him to do this. And his original audience would have understood supernatural beings with rank and power. You might remember this. We touched on this in the series when Jesus said this in Matthew 12, beginning in verse 43. It's the only time Jesus really broke it down like this. But listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 43 through 45. He says this. When an unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. Now, this is God speaking, right? So what he's describing, he's not describing an analogy. This is how they think. You are a house that they belong to. I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. Jesus is describing there's rank. The demon left. 
wandered around, said, let me go back, saw that things were different about the person, and said, let me go get seven spirits more evil than me. There's rank. The infrastructure that Paul is communicating is one that is organized and militarized. And if we see it as just random acts of possession or oppression and just not realize that there is a significant organized strategy. So he communicates this infrastructure. But then he goes to influence. The last couple of weeks we've been asking this question, what influence do cosmic powers of darkness have over us? Well, he starts to explain here the influence they have over the world. And this is not, should not be new to us. If you've been in this series, if you're a member of this church and you've been through this series, this idea should not be new to us for verses like this that we've already seen. When we talk about what's their influence, we remember Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. Here's what Moses wrote. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Now, we've already went through this passage hand over fist, but we understand that this is describing after the Tower of Babel, God divided up humanity according to the number of the sons of God. Sons of God is the language of divine beings, supernatural beings. God said, all right, you're going to go here and you're going to be over these people. He's telling you're going to have influence. He divides up humanity according to supernatural beings that have authority. They have influence over those people. We've looked at Psalm 82 where God is offended at their influence. And he says this in Psalm 82, verses 1 through 7. He says, God has taken his place in the divine council. We know the divine council are God in the midst of other supernatural beings that he's given authority to to execute things in the world. And he says, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. Keep in mind, God doesn't have a problem calling them gods. This is why he calls himself the most high God. Verse 2, and he says this to them, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. He's saying, I've given you influence over these people, and they're so lost that they have neither knowledge or understanding. They walk about in darkness. And he says, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. Your influence over these people has disturbed me, who God is saying to them. Verse 6, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High. 
He's making it clear who he's talking to. He says, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. I gave you supernatural beings authority over people and a land, and your disobedience has caused you now to be judged by me. You're going to die like them. There's influence. Paul knows all these scriptures. Every one of them. He believes every one of them. So when he's writing about their rank and their influence, he's taking his cues both from what the Bible says and other works that are not from the Bible that we've read throughout the series. In Daniel chapter 10, we see this, beginning in verse 10. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. So here is an, an angel telling Daniel, Hey, I've come to answer your prayer. Then he says this in verse 13. He says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. This is what the angel is saying. There was a, 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 a supernatural being that works for Satan that is called the prince of Persia that stopped me for 21 days to come to you. That's a powerful supernatural being. Because in our minds, who can stop God? It's like, what you mean he stopped you for 21 days? You with God. Just be like, bye, you know. Even I dream of genie with this blink of the wing. Some of y'all don't know about that, but some of us, for those that do, we know. In Daniel 10, 21, 20 and 21, he says this. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. These are supernatural beings that have influence over a nation of people. Persia is what we would call today Iran. There's a prince over a supernatural being that has influence over the whole nation of Persia and Greece. And then he says, verse 21, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except these, Michael, your prince. So the supernatural being over you in Israel is Michael. They have significant influence over the world we live in. The question is, how much influence do they have over you? In Luke 4, in the temptation of Satan and Christ, here's what the devil says. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. We've seen this a couple times in this series. And said to him, to you I will give all this authority 
and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So here the devil is allowed to tempt Jesus by saying all the kingdoms of the world. He's not talking about buildings, but all of the people in the world have been delivered over to me. I can give them to whoever I want. I will give them to you if you will worship me. The devil is saying, I have influence over the whole world. So what's the theme? Cosmic beings are in authority over people and land. And they're connected. You guys should remember this. In Mark 5, 7 through 10, we see this scene happen with Jesus talking to a bunch of demons and a dude. And it says this, beginning of verse 7, And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. So here's what this demon-possessed man is telling Jesus. There's a bunch of us in here. Now, depending on how you understand the word legion, it can mean two different things. Some people say legion, if it's the Roman legionnaire, then it's over like 100 soldiers. But then some other, some other theologians think legion could actually mean up to 2,000 demons. So there's a ton of demons in this one dude. And here's what they say to him. Verse 10. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. They didn't want to leave the area because they have authority there. They didn't want Jesus to send them somewhere else. This is a Gentile region called Gennesaret. So they were begging Jesus, please don't send us out of the area because they have authority there. They so possessed this man, they basically took what Jesus said and applied it. Demons more powerful than itself. This man is like super strong. Both Jew and Gentile would have understood the infrastructure and the influence of supernatural beings. So Paul is using language to communicate to them, this is the warriors you're fighting against. And he appeals to that. He understands that they understand these things. Greeks and Romans both, you know what's interesting about Greeks and Romans? They actually worship the same gods. They just changed the name. They, they, they changed the name. You got, in the, you got in the Greek pantheon primordial deities. These are like the first beings that were created. They were the ones responsible for creation of the universe according to Greek mythology, right? That's like chaos, Gaia. Where do you think Mother Earth comes from? Mother Earth comes from Greek mythology, Gaia. Uranus, sky. Then you got the Titans. Many of you, uh, this, is a, this is an older movie, but one of my favorite old movies that's super cheesy right now because it was, it's Clash of the Titans. <laughs> Loved it. If you watched it now, you would laugh. <laughs> but I would be in my happy place. 
These were these, there were 12 deities. 12 deities. They get this conflict with the Olympians. And that's who we're most familiar with in the Greek pantheon. That's Zeus, Mount Olympus. But their gods are the same. So for the Greeks, their god was Zeus. For the Romans, his name was Jupiter, king of the gods. For the Greeks, it was Hera. For the Romans, it was Juno, queen of the gods. For the Greeks, it was Poseidon. For the Romans, it was Neptune. For the Greeks, it was Demeter. For the Romans, it was Ceres. For the Greeks, it was Ares. For the Romans, it was Mars. For the Greeks, it was Athena. For the Romans, it was Minerva. For the Greeks, it was Artemis. For the Romans, it was Diana, the goddess of the hunt. Hephaestus, for the Greeks. Vulcan, the god of the blacksmith. Aphrodite, for the Greeks. Venus, for the Romans. It goes on and on. They understood this, the Gentiles. The Gentile Christians in this church, when they hear Paul describing rulers, authorities, they would have been like, oh, okay. They would immediately thought, man, what we used to believe, this pantheon of all these gods with all this authority, their minds would have went there. The Jews would have done the same thing. We've talked a lot about demonology in this series. We've only talked a little bit about angelology. And the reason is because largely for the ancient Israelite, a lot of their understanding of angels came from sources that we don't read. So we don't read the pseudepigrapha and the apocrypha a lot. We don't read the Qumran. We don't read the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're not getting most of our theology from that literature, but the Jews would have believed a lot of what it said. We looked at Enoch was the only book that we really looked at in this series. But they had a lot of their understanding of angels and the infrastructure of angels from books that we don't normally read. But there's also in the scriptures, the language is also there. So for them, for the, for the Jews who were in the church in Ephesus, as they heard this structure, they would have been like, yeah, I get it. Because they had in their minds the seven archangels. That's coming out of the book of Enoch. We read these names, Uriel, Raphael, Raguel, Michael, Sarakiel, Gabriel, and Remael. They're described in Enoch as the watchers. But they're also described in our gospel, our book. In Daniel 4, 13, this is what happens. Nebuchadnezzar has a vision, a dream. And here's what it says. Beginning in verse 13 through 17. I saw the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree and top off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast flee from underneath it and the bird from its branches, but leave the stump of the roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven, let his portion be with the beasts and the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's mind, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by decree of the watchers. 
the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets it over the lowliest of men. So here's the scene where Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, is walking around boasting, chest out. Hot boy summer. <laughs> boasting, like, look at what I've done. And, and he hears a voice that says, oh, really? Oh, okay. Modern day translation. It's Kurt translation. I tell you what, fam. <laughs> Since you're talking like that, you're going to get this work. I'm going to take your mind and have you live like an animal for seven years. Your fingernails going to be long and dirty. And no woman going to want that. You know, they look at fingernails. <laughs> if you are single, men, clean your nails. <laughs> if you do not, you will remain single longer than you thought. Because <laughs> women will look at your cuticles, all of it. You are cute if your cuticles are clean. I'm giving you some game. He said, we're going to take your mind and you're going to, the most powerful man in the world is going to live like a beast for seven years. And who says this? The watchers. On behalf of God. The watchers said this. They understood these archangels that the watchers. So the Jews had a hierarchy in mind. They understood they understood divine counsel, Psalm 82, 2 King, 1 Kings 22, when God gathers and said, who's going to go after Ahab? They understood the angelic counsel. They understood guardian angels. We just heard Michael was the guardian angel of Israel. Jesus said this in Matthew 18, the only time that Jesus said it like this. Matthew 18, verse 10, he said this. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, talking about children. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. So here Jesus is saying there are angels that are guarding these children, and they have direct connection with the Father in heaven. So you be careful how you treat them, because they're going to report it to the Father, and he's going to repay you. They had the category of guardian angels. They had seven archangels. They had the hierarchy of angels. They had the category of fallen angels. We learn that in the book of Enoch, but we also see it in Revelation 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. We've said this in the series, but do not think that once angels become Satan, work with Satan, that they're now demons. That's not who demons are. We know that demons are disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. They're still called angels, even though they're with Satan. Satan and his angels. They're fallen angels. They're not demons. Those are two different kinds of spiritual beings. Jews understood this. Gentiles, they got it. They're like, okay, we're in a war, and there's Warriors, and here they are, and they have military rank, and they have jurisdiction over parts of the world that we live in. He wants to make sure they understand that 
so they know why he gives those commands at the beginning. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because the people you're fighting against can't be hurt by the stuff that you do. They're not hurt by your knowledge or your bravery or your extrovert or introvert. They're not hurt by that. They don't care if you fast from social media. <laughs> in and of themselves, they're not afraid of you. But they are afraid of the heat that's in you. And they are afraid of you if you're willing to recognize the war, the warriors, and now the weaponry. So after Paul lays out, here's the war, here's the warriors, here's their infrastructure, here's their influence, here's the weapons. Here's the weapons that you use. Beginning in verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. That's an interesting segment. In all circumstances. Not just when you're attacked. In all circumstances, make sure your faith is up. Make sure your faith is up. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. I love this. So don't quench, the, don't extinguish the spirit, extinguish the darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The greatest challenge for us in this list is that these just don't sound like weapons to us. We're just not impressed with these weapons. But, you know, if you were to do a reality show, right, and you picked five members of our church, some of the most, say, just pick five of the most unathletic people in the church, right? I picked Pastor Kerr. Hey, go ahead, fine. <laughs> and you tell us, all right, in two weeks, we're going to war. We're going to literally fight. And the reality show is us learning how to be soldiers in two weeks before we're shipped overseas. First of all, just on a practical level, the waiver that I would have to sign <laughs> would be a $20 million waiver to my family should I die in combat. So I'll be on your show, but my family's going to be compensated thoroughly. All right? But if you took us and did that, in two weeks, we would not be ready. No matter how you edit that footage. <laughs> no matter how you edit that footage. I'm going to still look a little bit like this, gassed out. It's other people that's going to be like, well, wait a minute. How do you click the thing? Hey, pull the thing back, man. Put the clip in. Ain't no, ain't no it would be a mess. You send us a war, we're going to die. You know why? Because we don't know how to use the weaponry. We don't know how to use the weapons. We don't, know, we don't understand tactics of war. We don't know what to look for, so we're going to die quickly. There are people in this room, you don't understand the weapons, and you don't understand the tactics. 
you don't believe these are weapons. If I'm a soldier and I go to war and I don't think this gun is going to do any good, I'm not going to use it. Or if I shoot it, boom, and the kickback is too much, I'm not using this. What, you going to grab some rocks? Ah! The greatest challenge is we don't believe that this list is an armor. But the people who heard it, they did. Because Paul used a specific analogy. Remember, they were in occupied territory. Rome was occupied territory. There are countries right now that hate the U.S. And some of that is because we just occupy their territory. We walk around. We have military bases there. There's no, unless I'm unaware, and I mean, I ain't trying to tell Ray to say nothing that he shouldn't say, but I'm unaware of any military bases of other nations in our country. But we're in a lot of countries. We walk around with soldiers go there for four or five years, serving the military. We occupy their territory. They are aware of the Americans. We don't even know about those people. We have to watch BBC News to find out what's happening outside of who's gay and who's married to who and who's doing what. We care about all these other things except what's really happening in the world. And these people, we're walking around their territory armed, shooting and killing men who may attack us. We're the occupied territory of these countries. The Romans were for these people. And so he describes what they would be the most aware of and to some degree the most afraid of. He describes what a Roman centurion looks like. A person that they see walking down the street when they see them. The Roman centurions were like Debo. Hey, hide your chain. <laughs> you see them and you're like, walk the other way. Because they had a thought that they could be like, hey, you. You right there, you too. Come carry this for five miles. They could make your granddad have to carry something that he's incapable of. So when Jesus was like, look, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. He's talking about the Romans. That's what he's talking about. If they force you to go one mile, go with them too. If they take your cloak, give them your tunic also. You show them that God provides for you. You're not worried about them. That's what he was talking about, the Romans. So Paul uses a, a, a Roman centurion, something that they would have been both afraid of and aware of, and describes, takes what they've seen, and describes the weaponry the way that a Roman centurion is dressed. And each piece of armor is associated with some Christian virtue or sort of a spiritual resource. And he breaks them all down. We're going to look at this list twice. So I'm going to read to you first what one commentator said about each of these. I thought this was very helpful. So he says, belt of truth. The belt was a crucial piece of Roman soldiers' gear because it held the rest of the armor together. The belt of truth represents sincerity, honesty, and integrity, which holds a Christian's life together. He says, breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate protected a soldier's vital organs. The breastplate of righteousness represents the righteousness received from Jesus Christ, which protects a believer's heart, i.e. their character or inner self. He says, shoes of the readiness given by the gospel of peace. A Roman soldier's shoes or sandals were designed for stability and traction, even in difficult terrain. So if any of you have seen like 300, where they're just like marching up this crazy mountain, nobody slipping or falling. He said their shoes represent the preparation 
to spread the gospel of peace or the readiness to share the good news about Jesus. He says, shield of faith. Roman soldiers use their shield to protect themselves from arrows. The shield of faith represents the faith in God that can protect the believer from spiritual harm, right, in, in reference to the, the flaming darts of the evil one. He says, helmet of salvation. The helmet was designed to protect the soldier's head from injury. The helmet of salvation represents the assurance of salvation, which protects the Christian's mind and thoughts. Sword of the Spirit. The sword is the only offensive weapon in this list representing the word of God, the Bible. It is used both for defense, countering spiritual attacks, and offense, spreading the gospel and fighting against evil. Paul's original audience would have been very familiar with the gear of a Roman soldier since they lived under Roman rule. Therefore, these metaphors would have clearly communicated the resources Christians have in their spiritual struggle and how to stand firm in their faith. This passage is not about physical combat, but spiritual warfare against the cosmic powers of this present darkness. The armor of God is about using God's resources, truth, righteousness, the gospel, faith, salvation, and the word of God to stand firm against spiritual attacks. Great commentary. But here's a question I want to ask, because we've all read this passage plenty of times. What do all of these weapons have in common? Well, they're from God. <laughs> Captain Obvious. What do they have in common? Let's look at the list again. Belt of truth, breastplate of righteousness, shoes of the readiness given the gospel of peace, shield of faith, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit. What do they have in common? All of these, all of these are connected to how we think. All of them. And they're all connected to how we think about the word of God. Do you believe the weapons are weapons? And here's the tension. We have weapons, but we have to put them on. It says put on, take this. Put this on. Prepare this. We have to put on to use the actual weapons. The Spirit puts them in us, but we have to put them to work for us. So let's look at these again in real time and see how does this really play out. Let me prove the point that these are all connected to the word and how we think about it, how we understand the word. So let's start with verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So belt of truth. Here's what Jesus said in John 17, 17. Here's what he said. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The belt of truth that holds everything together is the word. 
So I'm saying we must know the scriptures well enough to discern truth from lies. You have to know it enough to know this is wrong. The belt of truth, the word is truth. These weapons have to do with how we think about the word of God. The breastplate of righteousness, verse 14. Where do we get our understanding of righteousness from? The word. We get our understanding of righteousness from the word. Hebrews 5.14, which we know this very well. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We distinguish good from evil because we understand the word. We believe the word of God. So with the belt of truth, the Bible has to hold everything together. The same Bible tells us what righteousness is. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. We get our righteousness from the Word. And so the breastplate is there to protect the conviction to honor the Lord. We have to protect the conviction to honor the Lord. Because if we don't, then the enemy's darts will go right there. And we've already talked about this before, but how many people have you known to at one point seem like sincere Christians to all of a sudden walk away from the faith or to lose the desire for the basics like coming to church, like reading and praying? I remember watching someone who was called a prayer warrior go from that to like struggling to pray, losing the desire to pray. If we do not protect the conviction to honor the Lord and we don't use the word to remind us of that, so how do we protect the conviction? One, we remind ourselves that we have to persevere to the end, that your confession is not the conclusion of your faith. Your, con your profession to believe in Jesus should be followed by your perseverance in that. A lot of people think, well, you know, that parents, we do this, we struggle with this a lot. Our children made a profession of faith when they were nine, and we're hoping it, that they still have it, even though they're living totally opposite of it. Your profession of faith is not the seal. The, the seal is your persevering to the end. You've got to believe when you leave. I've seen a lot of people. Josh Harris was my friend. I've been in his home. Used to talk on the phone to him. He came to this church and interviewed me for his documentary, I Kiss, I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. We sat right here with this camera crew, and we laughed and joked about stuff for years. I had no idea in that interview that he would announce that he was walking away from the faith. This dude wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye it sold millions of copies. It was translated in like 40-something languages the last I heard. Infected, influenced a lot of people's lives. Did a lot of good. I sat there, watched them teach sermons. 
I liked him. I used to call him Young Corleone. Walked away from the faith. Now we'll say, how could a Christian? The Bible says, if you don't persevere to the end, you didn't believe in the first place. It's not what you did for God when you professed. It's what you believe when you leave. That's why someone like Samson, who ain't write no books and who had some of the most ungodly character, is in Hebrews 11 as an example, because at the end, he believed. He believed enough to cry out to the Lord. So all the books and stuff that were written, listen, God is not like, oh, no. If people walk away after they said it, it's going to influence other people. God's like, shoot, I'm going to go ahead and use the stuff you wrote. I'm going to use that. You can... You know why? Because God isn't worried about that because his justice is sufficient. The wrath that people will experience is just, is God is good with it. Like, I, when that comes, it's going to be over. None of us are going to be in heaven like, man, these people got over. <laughs> None of us. When we see God's wrath, we're going to be like, oh, man, I know it was the blood. I know it was the blood. I know it was the blood that saved me. We're going to be like that. You've got to protect the conviction to honor the Lord. Verse 15, that shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness, given the gospel of peace. Many of us think sharing the gospel is a suggestion. We don't realize that God is saying that's how you thwart against the devil. But where do we get our understanding of the gospel from? The word. When we preach from the God, when we preach to people their salvation in Jesus, we didn't get it from some hieroglyphics that somebody found. We get it from the word. This is what Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians 10. Remember this last week? For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive. Paul was like, we're preaching the gospel. That's the power of God to cut against all these, all these lies, people's thoughts. We're taking all of them captive to obey Christ. 2 Peter 1, 19-21 says this. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but a man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So when you preach the gospel, it comes from the word. How you think about the word is going to be the weapons that you use. 16, the shield of faith. Why faith? Hebrews eleven six, 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Where does faith come from? Where does it come from? Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. These are all connected to the word and how we think and understand the word. Do you believe the weapons are weapons? Intellectually, yes. But do you believe them on Wednesday when you're tired? 
Do you believe them on Friday when you're offended at someone? The shield protects us. It's faith, and faith comes from the word. Verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Salvation. Where do we understand our salvation from? Survey says. So what is he saying? You have to have in your mind your salvation. What does that mean? Your salvation is connected to your identity because that's where the enemy goes first. He will attack your identity, and once he makes you think because of some sin or some misunderstanding, whatever, that you're not really who you thought you were, then you start losing, then all of a sudden that, that helmet comes off, and here comes the dart. Boom! I'm not sure if I really, I mean, I mean, aren't there other ways that you can be saved? I'm not sure if I, that's always his strategy. Let's go back to a, a, a place we've been plenty of times, Genesis 3. Listen to, what, listen to this right here. Listen to what certain Satan says here. This is how it all started, right? Now the serpent was more crafty, verse 1 through 5, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Listen to what he said. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. But God said, let's make man in our image. They're already like me. So Satan started with identity. You're not like God yet. But if you do, if you want to be like God, then bite from this tree. And you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. He always goes after your identity. In Matthew 4, in tempting Jesus, verse 3, here's what he says. And the tempter came to him and said to him, if you are the son of God. Now, at the end of chapter 3, we saw Jesus baptized, right, by John, comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove, and a voice says what? This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus heard that. First thing Satan says, if you are the son of God. Let me challenge your identity. Why do you think when you give in to sin, you feel like a hypocrite? And why do you think you're not comfortable to pray or to read or to raise your hands in church? You want to withdraw and be away from people? Why do you think that happens? Because the enemy is attacking your identity. And if you don't have the belt of truth, if you don't have 1 John 2, 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. If you don't have that truth, if that's not a part of your salvation, if that's not protecting your conviction, then when you hear that, you're a hypocrite because you failed and you take that helmet off and start to think about it. Boom, there's the arrow. And now all of a sudden, a person who you look to to some degree, now you got to look for them. 
every time Jesus responded to Satan, he responded from what? The word. The word. And John tells us that he was the word. So guess what? He was responding from his own identity. And guess what? When you become a Christian, you have an identity like Christ. So guess what you have to respond from? Your identity, the word. All of these are how do you think about the word? You have to protect your identity, your salvation, who you are. 2 Peter 1, 9 and 10. Y'all have heard me say this a lot. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. For whoever lacks these qualities that he lists in verse 5 through 7 is so nearsighted that he has forgotten that he has been cleansed of his former sins. He didn't say if you're not growing, you're not a believer. He said you're forgetting that you're a believer. And then verse 10, so he says, so look. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. If you're not growing as a Christian, you've forgotten that your former sins have been cleansed, which means you no longer have to submit to those. Now, if you play with them and you keep dibbling, dabbling in them and make justification for why you should do them, then all of a sudden now you can't leave. Now it becomes hard to resist. Now I have an addiction to fill in the blank. Our identity doesn't come from how we feel about ourselves. It doesn't come from what we think God thinks. Our identity comes from what God actually says in his word. The Bible is God telling us what he thinks. And what he thinks of you is you're a child. That when you fall, when you sin, I love my boys all the same. When they do something hard-headed, I'm not like, hey, look, man, you're not even my son no more, man. Pack your bags and go ahead. And... <laughs> I would never say that. And I'm an evil person. If I would never tell my sons, hey, get out of here because you did something wrong, then why is God, why would God tell you that? But if you don't protect your identity, if you don't guard that conviction to honor the Lord, then your disobedience will affect your identity. That breastplate will start to get hot, and now you need some air, so you take off your identity. It's not one or the other, it's all of them. With all the weapons largely used defensively, the sword of the spirit is placed in the list as the piece of armor that actually attacks and wounds the enemy. It is the sharpest and longest of the weapons and the only one that is designed to make the enemy defend himself. All the other weapons protect the soldier. And sure, you could use your shield as a weapon, I mean, if you're fighting for your life, you're going to use anything. There are times, I've been, it's been a long time since I've been in a fight, but I don't, man, I'll throw a patch of grass and dust in your face. I don't care. <laughs> man, when we was little, we used to slap box. So everything was about, like, slap boxing, having all this form, even though your thumbs would be all out. Like, who's going to be slap boxing when we was little? But then you, then you get in a real fight, and you're like, man, I ain't trying, it ain't technique. I'm going to pick you up. I'm going to grab something, throw it at you. Anything I can do. But for a Roman centurion soldier, they were really trained. Their sword was significant to them. Sure, they could use their shield to hit the person, but you can't kill a person with that. You can't kill your enemy. That sword is what attacks. That sword is the only weapon that makes them defend themselves. 
because you're attacking them. It's offensive and defensive. Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 tells us this. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the soul, to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. Do you realize that when you actually believe the Bible, like when, it's, when you believe it, when it's not just a book to you, and you're not trying to debate like who wrote what and all that, but when you actually believe the Bible, do you understand that you have, you understand the world in ways that nobody else does? You understand why people sin? You understand why people do some of the things they do? You have an anthropology of God explaining to you. And just from that alone, you already are able to just process things in a way that's helpful. You have to understand, like, every time, everything isn't about you being attacked. Sometimes you're just learning the word so that you're pushing back on stuff before it even attacks you. I mean, who's sitting around waiting today? Oh, man, I'm really struggling. Let me, let me open up my Bible and find a verse. Like, no, you read when you're not attacked. You, you study the word when you're not attacked because you're on the offensive. I ain't, even, I ain't even letting you get to me today. We attack the lies in the world with the truth of the word. So how does this play out practically? Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to the image of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. We renew our minds. You don't wait till you're under attack. You're doing it when nothing's going on. You're doing it to be ready. Believe it or not, Jesus wasn't defending himself against Satan. He was also attacking him. Because Satan was the one that had to come with a new strategy. When you have to come with a new strategy, you're the one being attacked. Jesus quoted the word. The word is powerful enough to be like, nah. Now Satan's got to figure out, oh, man, what I got. Okay, now what? Let me think of this. Obedience to the word is the greatest offense that we have. And it's also the most offensive to the enemy. The second is taking possession of the land. Telling others to believe in Jesus is offensive. Because we're going into his kingdom, using the word of God as a sword, and telling people, hey, that's a lie. Let me cut that for you. That stronghold is a lie. Let me slice that for you. That's not you, like, waiting for somebody to attack you. That's you going in and with the sword, with the word of God, attacking. I'm going after this lie. Hey, brother, can I have a conversation with you? When someone asks you to give a biblical opinion, opinion, hey, what do you think about this? You're not being attacked, but that sword is cutting through that because I see through that. I see what's happening in the culture. Do you agree with that? No, I don't actually. I don't. It's offensive and defensive. You know what's what's missing in this list? The gifts of the Spirit. They're missing. Not one of the gifts of the Spirit that people act like are such powerful displays of the Spirit that the devil is supposedly scared of. Oh, the devil doesn't want to come in here today, brothers and sisters. We're going to... People falling out, shaking and all that. That was a good exercise. Heart rate went up. 
The devil's not scared of that. He'd be like, hey, when they finish, let me talk to them. <laughs> when they finish with all that. Falling on the floor. I think, that, I think demons are falling on the floor laughing at people doing that. That's not impressive. Not one of those things is listed as something necessary to withstand the schemes of the devil. The gifts of the spirit are absent here. The gifts that we call charismatic are not necessary weapons. But you know what is? The fruit of the spirit. The breastplate of righteousness. Your character is more a weapon than your charismatic understanding of the spirit. It's not here. It's not necessary to withstand the schemes of the devil. Read this for yourself. Look at the original languages. It's not here. It's not necessary. And people walk around with their chests out like they this and that, like Satan is scared of them, and he's just waiting for you. Because if you don't have character, them gifts ain't going to do nothing for you. Righteousness is part of the armor. Personality, supernatural gifts, at least in the translations I've looked at, I don't see them. So while we're not against those things, we ain't promoting them like they something to us. Because we care about what God cares about, what's necessary for us. Everything we've learned in this series should make us more serious about our responsibility to be reading, meditating, obeying, and enduring sound doctrine. It all comes from the word of God. We're not trying to be ghostbusters. We're trying to be Holy Ghost trusters. My album comes out Friday. Make sure y'all pick that up. I'm allowed to do that. I've been here 15 years. I'm allowed to promote. All of this armor that we ought to put on has to do with how we think about the word. Spiritual warfare started in Genesis 3 by giving in to the devil. It ends in Revelation 22 by resisting the devil. And we're in between. We're somewhere in between. From disobedience to the word of God to obedience to the word of God. This, my brothers and sisters, is how we fight. These are the weapons that we use. Other things are helpful, but these are our weapons. If we do not protect our conviction, if we do not have a high value and endless fascination with the word of God, then we'll go to everything else but that. I'm not trying to offend anyone, but your therapist is not, if they're not a Christian and using the word of God, it's going to be temporary. If whoever you're talking to, your friend, isn't rooted in the word, helpful, but won't make you holy. Everything we've learned all centers around to what do I think about the Bible? How much do I believe it? How much do I trust it? And am I protecting my identity, my conviction to obey them? Or am I playing around making excuses for things that I know I should do 
but I just don't feel like going there. There are consequences for that. And if nothing else, this series has taught us how serious all of this is. With that being said, we officially conclude the supernatural storyline of the Bible series. Q&A, if there's any questions. Yeah. Oh, thank you. There we go. <laughs> so this is a good time to go ahead and grab your communion if you don't have it. Uh, but we do have a few questions here. And the first question is, um, what assurance do we have as believers that we will make it to the end? What assurance do we have? Yes. Say it again, Jenna. The word. The word, right? I, I, think, I think God says that he will keep those who belong to him. But he doesn't say, we don't know who those people are because we've all thought people were believers and they proved not to be. So I think, to be honest with you, your assurance is in the promise of God, but you are responsible to steward that. That's the tension. God promises things in his word, but he doesn't promise them in such a way that we don't do anything. Right? There are promises that God has made that those who belong to him, those chosen, all of those things, we can, I could read a ton of verses. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. There's a ton of these things that you call doxologies in your Bible that just wrap the book up and it says, him who is able to keep us from stumbling or falling. That kind of language. God promises to do that. But he doesn't promise it in such a way, doesn't promise it in such a way that we have no responsibility but to just wait until the end. We're at war. And you're not, you're not, you don't go to war passively. You may be a little bit passive in some things, sure. But the war is not something that's passive. We participate with what the Bible says. And we, and we fight to persevere because the Bible also says, the same Bible that says he will guard against it until that day. And Philippians 1, I am convinced that he is able to, that same word says he who conquers to the end will be saved. So I think our assurance is that God promises that those who belong to him are saved and will make it. But it also says we got to be diligent to make our calling and election sure. Um, how should we process Jesus' identity as the word in John or Revelation as we think about the armor? I think in two ways. I mean, so you get, <clears throat> you know what's interesting? Well, I said, it's a can of worms. I don't know if I should open up. I'm going on sabbatical. All right, so uh, I'll let that sit. Yeah, I, I think, I think in, in, in two primary ways. One, I think we should have, like if we, we have to believe the Bible. Like people think that once you accept Jesus as your savior, if you will, that that's the end of faith. That's just not the end of faith. 
It's like you haven't arrived yet. Like part of what we do is that's sort of the introduction to faith. Like we now believe and now we have, with that faith, we believe other things. Because that's the scariest thing to believe. The scariest thing to believe is that when you die, God's going to let you go to heaven, even though you're aware of plenty of times that you didn't obey him, sometimes willfully. That's the scary thing. Once you accept that as, okay, your sins are forgiven, and you're, then you start to believe all these other things. So like he, so 11.6, we trust that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You have to believe that. You have to believe those things. So when we believe the promises of God, then knowing that Jesus is the word, if our confidence is in Jesus who came in human flesh to die on the cross, but that he's also the word of God, then we're using our faith in Jesus as the word of God and as the, the salvation for us. It's, it's almost like the best of both worlds. It's not like we believe in him there, but then we get this from here. It's like, no, this is all the same. When you see me, you see the Father. When you hear from me, you hear from the Father. It's the word of God. So our confidence in our salvation and forgiveness of sin should propel our confidence in the Bible, the word of God, that tells us all these things. Our confidence should really grow, but we've just, over time, I think we just don't know how to meditate on the word and know how to really do that. And so it becomes like, I mean, let's just be honest, the Bible, and many, much, a lot of it is just boring. And most of us would rather, we'd rather talk to someone for two hours than read for 30 minutes. And we just don't, it's just, we're just bored. And I think many of us just need to humbly just say, you know what, Lord? And some of us have. This series has helped a lot of us see things differently. But we just need to be honest. Like, Lord, I just don't, I struggle with reading your word. There are some people who would be like, man, it seems like every time I read, I just get tired and doze off. And then for them, it's like, all right, well, I just, I don't, I just can't read because I get, I, I, I doze off a lot. Just tired. You're just tired. You read and the enemy's after you. You get tired. I just be like, you know what? I'm reading out loud from now on. I just see it as a scheme of the devil. Like I was wide awake thinking about something else. As soon as I started reading, it's like, man, I'm just, it's like, nah, man, I know what this is. So I'll just start reading out loud. I'm the same with prayer. If I'm praying and I'm getting all distracted and my mind is going here, I'll just be like, you know what? I'm praying out loud. And if the people in the car, nowadays, they're going to think you on the phone anyway. <laughs> I just be like, I'm on the phone. I'm loud. And then you look at them, and they see no earpiece. I was going to come and say, <laughs> Now, you don't got to be like me. I'll do that. Because if you're staring at me, I feel like it's, it's open season to stay back at you. Like, why are you, why are you staring at me? So I'll just look at you. Yeah, Lord, so these people right there, I'll just look at them. <laughs> but I think we just, we persevere. Like, like, nothing about the faith should be easy. So if you read and you're tired or you, you get distracted, then try something else, but you still do it. It's not like, oh, okay, because it's a little bit difficult, then you wouldn't do that with anything else. Parenting is difficult. Parenting is difficult. You have a baby, and all of a sudden you realize, Dad, the baby is telling me what to do. <laughs> the baby's crying. I got to pick the baby up. The baby wakes up at 3. I got to get up. When your teens wake up at 3, you just be like, go back to bed. When the babies get up, you got to get up. Or they're telling you what to do. It's like it's not easy. It's not easy, but you don't just say, all right, well, I'm done with being a mom. Go ahead and cry yourself to death. Like, you don't do that. <laughs> you pick up the child. You struggle. You, 
You be do what you gotta do, change the diaper, get mad at whoever. You wake, it's your turn next. You go through all of that, and then, but it's not easy. Like we sometimes we treat the Bible and growth like it's supposed to be easy. When it's a little bit difficult, we're ready to just like, all right, well, can I just go see, get counseling, or can I go do this, or can I just, can I go to my Whatever it is, it's like, no, it's not supposed to be easy. The enemy doesn't want you to read, doesn't want you to pray. So when it's hard to understand, then pray out loud, read out loud, uh, put some put worship music on, something else, but persevere in it because that's how you guard the conviction to do it. Once you start being like, oh, I'm just, I'm not a reader, I'm not this. How are you not a reader and Jesus is the word? You may not be, you may not like reading. You may not be the best at it, but you do it. Okay, if you don't want to read, then okay, Moses, God, I'm not a good talker. All right, fine, go get Aaron then. Fine, and put the Bible on audio. But like we gotta, you gotta, you gotta protect that because it is the armor. If you don't, no wonder you're not, you're falling asleep and you just you give up. It doesn't work that way. It's not like, oh, the enemy's not trying to not bother you. So I just think we just have to persevere in a lot of that stuff. Um, how do we change from living in fear to living in faith? Well, I don't know what you're af- what you're what you're afraid of, what the fear is in. So in that sense, I might have a different answer if I knew specifically. But if we're talking about just a general theories. I think you have to, I think it's two things. One, I have to understand what is it that I'm afraid of and why am I afraid of this? What are you afraid of and why are you afraid of it? And then I think, because I think that it could be maybe you're afraid of something that because you thought the Lord was going to do it, but he didn't, or, or you, I, I don't know what the, what the fear is in. It's not, it's not a one size fits all. But I think it's what am I afraid of? Why am I afraid of this? And then then I think, honestly, again, if you, you have to believe the weapons are the weapons. Then it's like, okay, what does the Bible say about this? The ways I've overcome things the most is like, okay, what does the Bible say about this? What does the Bible say about this? Does the Bible say this? Is it, does the Bible say that? I'm afraid of suffering, right? Say you're afraid of suffering. What does the Bible say about that? Some of us are just afraid of doing something because it's going to be hard. What does the Bible say about that? Like the whole notion of endurance or perseverance, those things are because it's difficult. Mm-hmm. You don't have to persevere when it's fun. It just time flies fast, right? I told you, we used to go, I told you the story. My mom used to take us to Kings of Men, and she, we'd get there. She was faithful to get us there at 10 o'clock when it opened, and she would say, you be back right here at 4 o'clock. And she always looked at me. <laughs> My mom is sitting right there, she'll tell you. It was always me. You be back here at 4 o'clock. It'd be eight kids. It'd be I'm the only one she talked to. And boy, we'd get on like, we like two rides, it'd be like 345. Like, oh man. <laughs> it just went by fast. And sadly, I would show back up at 422 <laughs> with an excuse. You don't have to endure anything that's easy. But the reason why God says endure, persevere, conquer, fight the good fight of faith. Take up your cross, deny yourself, put on the whole armor, take up the shield of faith. All that language is because it's challenging. We should know that by now. So when it comes to what we're afraid of, there are times I just don't want to fail. I will not do things because I'm afraid to fail. 
And so I'll just delay it and delay it and delay it and delay it. I'll just delay it because I'm a, I'm, I don't want to fail. But that's not faith. What does the word say? What does the word say? Okay, I got I to gotta put to death this. It says, perfect, for God did not give us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. So I need to believe this. So that I, so for me to protect the conviction to honor the Lord, I need to believe that he's given me not a spirit of fear. It doesn't mean I'm supposed to walk around like, hey, what's going on? We all at? No, nah, but it just means like, okay, I'm not going to give in to being afraid just because as you start to push back on that, as that sword starts to push back on it, it'll have less power over you. There were, there were things in my life I wasn't sure if I'd ever get over because I just did them so much. And now those things, like, they bother me. And it's just, like, it's just what happens. So it's, it's not an easy thing, and it's not supposed to be because the reward is worth it. Paul said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth being compared to the glory that will be revealed to us. So he's like, look, the stuff you're going through right now is nothing compared to what you're going to receive when you get there. But you've got to fight to get there. This question is, if God knew the sons of God were going to fail the people, why did he allow them to take over different nations? If God knew why the, the sons of God would fail people, why did he allow them to take over different nations? Well, the Bible doesn't ever answer questions directly like that. So no one really knows. The best we can do is speculate, right? So my, my speculation would be this. I truly believe that Jesus is so significant to the Father and that Jesus is coming to earth and taking on the full wrath of God on the cross was so significant to the Father that he allowed and continues to allow some of the most evil things that we see because he knew that the forgiveness of these things is significant because it's, it's actually me, my son, who I'm going to punish to forgive people. And, and on the other side of it, God's wrath is going to be so severe that it's going to overshadow all of the things that we question, why did he allow? Because when it happens, like I said earlier, no one is going to be like, wow, they got over. Right. We're going to be like, casting them crowns. Because we realize, wow. So I think that God was not in any way not, not that he wasn't bothered because Psalm 82 tells us he's angry at them. Look at what you've done. But I think that the, the cross, Jesus was so sufficient to God that he was willing to let things happen and even let these cosmic beings, because many of those people, some of those people are going to be redeemed by him. And I think the things that we still see happening that we're just like, man, why doesn't God stop that? It's because God's going to repay the evil that was done. And when he does, it will overshadow the evil 
that people did, including the enemy. So, and I, and I believe this because if you think about this, you know, Satan only exists at God's behest, right? It's not like Satan is an autonomous being. If the Lord were like, you know what? I'm kind of getting tired of this dude. He's gone. He would just be gone. It's not like the Lord is like, man, I really can't. Do you notice in the Bible, it's never God fighting against the devil. It's always, and Michael and his angels. It's always like God is just like, man, let me send my little homie down there to fight the devil. <laughs> like he's not, he, he, I'm going to send one of my underbosses. God is like, man, I don't even, man, let me just watch this play out. I just think he, and we don't understand it, but was in some way, shape, or form, he's the most glorified by allowing evil to persist, having people who have to believe in him in the midst of evil persisting, and we still believe in him, he's the most glorified by that, and our faith is the most purified by that. And we believe because we trust him, even though when we look around, we're just like, man, things are getting crazier and crazier. And your faith is getting stronger and stronger. And God's like, I'm going to reward that. So that's what I would say. Um, as it relates to, like, the, you know, mentioning the Prince of Persia, Prince, um, do you think that um, the areas, Persia, Greece, are named after the, uh, the cosmic power or vice versa? I think... So demons or evil spirits are often called the name of what they do, right? So we'd see Jesus be like, come out of him, you mute and deaf spirit, right? And that's what it would do to the person. So there are, there are definitely spirits that are given names based on their functionality. I don't think the, I think the prince of Persia is, prince is essentially a, a, a supernatural being with significant authority that has power over, the, it's, it's more what you're responsible for, right? So demons, this is what you do to people. The prince of Persia is this is who you're over, these people. So it's really a statement of governance is where it comes from. I think that with the, I think that the, the angelic being is it's a prince, but the Persia is its responsibility. Here's the jurisdiction, here's the people that you're over, and here's the land that they are, and that's, that's kind of the way it works. All right. Um, could you give uh, some practicals? And you may have already touched on this. I, I think you have, but I'll honor the question, but reword it um, a bit. Um, can you touch on how the practicalities of walking out your conviction as opposed to, um, you'll understand this, fruit stapling steps that people can take, like accountability and uh, counseling even, um, do you understand my question? Mm -hmm. Others may not, but I think you, you know what I'm talking about. So let's be clear, like, those things aren't bad. Like, getting counsel, you know, things, they're not bad things. I think it's good to have them. Proverbs is littered with wage war with lots of counsel, right? I mean, that's real. Uh, accountability is we have, you know, Galatians 6, 1, confess our sins, Lord, bear one another's burdens, all those things, right? So there's, there's that part of this. Um, but I think those things, I think, so I would start with, what am I more prone to do? So if I'm more prone to want to talk to somebody, whether it's me or somebody else, or a therapist or whatever, 
if I'm more prone to um, want to talk about things and think things through rather than pray, mm. sometimes you're just not going to resolve it. And I think a lot of times because God is impressed with faith. I, I genuinely believe this. I think when people are like, well, I, just, I don't do nothing unless I hear from the Lord. I don't think you always hear from the Lord. I think that's sight. That's not faith. If the Lord always told you what to do, it sounds godly. Like, whoa, that person, they don't do nothing. And the, man, I think, that, I think there's a lot of lowercase s in that. I think because the Lord is moved by faith, I don't know what to do. I've asked the Lord. He knows what I don't know. So I'm making this decision because I think it's the best. I think it honors him. I don't know. I don't think the Lord's always going to be like, do this and do this and marry this person and take this job and do this. Sometimes it's just like, uh, all right, this is what I think. So I think I start with one. What are you more prone to? And then I would ask this question. Are you apathetic towards the things like prayer? Like, are those sort of the last resort? I think what happens in many of our lives is we make these things like last resorts. Like, all right, well, I'm going to go ahead and fast then. Well, I'm going to go ahead and pray then. It's like they've become last resorts. And so we do all these other things. I, I would say that, like, I would evaluate what am I more prone to do? Do I desire these things more? And do I have confidence in these things? Like, is prayer kind of a challenge because I just don't feel like waiting on the Lord? Well, then it's like, well, man, there's an attitude there that says, well, Dad, why, why, why do you think you know better than God for your life when you don't even know what's going to happen in the next 15 minutes? Like, I think we just have to be honest about where we are. So I would ask certain questions of myself to try to figure out what am I, what's really going on here? And then I would, and I would be honest. I think the Lord can handle our honesty. There are just psalms that are just like, wow, this is like a wild statement. There are certain passages in scripture, I'm like, wow, they really said that to God. That's stuff you wouldn't even, I wouldn't even say to my mom. It's like, I mean, can you imagine, like, Moses telling God, like, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not a good talker. And God be like, I command you to go tell Pharaoh, no, I'm just, no, I don't want to do that. I'm not good at speaking. All right, fine, get Aaron, your brother. But then, you know, it's just like, you telling God no? John the Baptist is in prison, and they tell him, hey, Jesus just raised somebody from the dead in a town called Naim. And John says, man, go ask, is he really the Messiah? Are we waiting for somebody else? Huh? You just baptized him a couple of months ago, and you saw the Spirit descend, and you heard the voice of God say that, and you talking about go ask him, is he really the Messiah or not? Like, God can handle our struggles. He can handle our frustrations. And I think a lot of times we just got to be honest about where we are. I'll just tell him, like, Lord, I don't really like this. There were times I was like, Lord, you can. <laughs> there are times I'm just honest with the Lord. And I'm like, Lord, you don't, you don't need me. I can, you can help me provide another way for my family, and I'm out. Let me go. You don't need me. I don't like this. I don't like this. I don't like this. I'm just be honest with the Lord, and I think. When you can get to a place of comfortability of being honest, the Lord's not like, who, who are you talking to? Like, that? <laughs> it's not like that. I, but I think sometimes we think like that sometimes. I think be honest with the Lord. Ask yourself real questions. Like, why do I, what, why do I lean towards this instead of that? What, why, why is reading the Bible not good to me? When I don't know what to pray, have you ever just prayed back the scriptures to God? Let me just read it and pray it back. Have you done stuff like that? Like, it's, it's, 
It's how, what are ways that you stop protecting the conviction? And then you got the sacrifice, right? The gospel. Deny himself. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. What if you might need to just chill out with the Netflix for a minute? Just so that you can read and, 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 and focus a little bit more. What if, you, what if you need to say, like, you know what? If, what if you need to take a break from social media? Not on some, um, like, that's fasting in, it, like the, in, the, in the way the Bible's talking about. But, like, what if, you just, what if you need to do certain things? There's nothing wrong with that. We can't grow in what's in a way that's most comfortable for us. So we have to figure out what, what ways am I not protecting? What ways have I just said, you know what, I just don't feel like doing that. I don't really want to fast. Now, there, there's wisdom in that. Some people have health issues, and you have to be careful. But there's no one that can't willfully go. I, don't, I mean, I could be wrong. I don't know many people that can't go without one meal of a day, even with blood sugar issues and all that. And the Lord knows, all right, I'm resisting. I would eat right now, but I'm resisting it because I want to honor you. Some people can't fast for a couple of days. There are days I've walked in here on a Sunday I haven't eaten since Thursday. Just water. That's what I'm doing. That's my normal routine now, to do more of that. Because not, not just because, oh, you need to lose weight. Sure. <laughs> no, we, are we honest here? I, ain't, I'm not, I know who I am. You may not need to lose weight physically, but some of you need to lose weight spiritually. So we real. We real. We honest about it. We real about who we are. Some of y'all fat on the inside. <laughs> So we honest about who we are, you know. We all got to grow. I you know, we got to grow. We're going after it. Some of y'all a little chubby in your attitudes, you know. You overweight with the arrogance. You know what I'm saying? Obese in your bitterness, you know. We don't want to have that conversation. But that's real, too. That's real. I mean, we real. We real with it. Solid rock, we real with it. We real with it. We deal with it. We real and we deal with it. I just think we just have to really, really be honest with the Lord and, and, and question those things. I think sometimes we think what we're doing is, is not working because there's something's wrong with what we're doing, and it could something's wrong with the way we're doing, and it could be, I just don't really want to sacrifice. So that's where I would go. Long answer. All right. Uh, last question in the statement. Um, the question is, would you mind sharing a link to the resource article that listed the weapons and how they compare to the Roman armor uh, I think so yeah okay we know you're on sabbatical so uh, person who asked that have grace um, yeah I'll send it in September right, <laughs> right. Exactly. I'm gonna send you the link to that album though <laughs> so uh, the statement uh, is is by Dwayne Gardner but I think it uh, is representative as we could tell uh, by the end of the sermon when you said this concludes uh, this sermon series, Ex uh, Dwayne said, excellent job teaching this series. Um, so great job, Pastor. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a... As mentioned, the members of this church know that tomorrow marks the beginning of your uh, sabbatical, your month-long sabbatical. And before we allow you to leave... Um, you and your family, because you are doing some traveling and other relaxation yeah. things for you. Uh, but uh, we want to take some time to pray for you and to first.
further acknowledge the 15 years of service, your 15 years of service here by watching a brief video um, and then have